Spirit throughout the revelation of God. Everywhere in Scripture, God addresses himself, he addresses his revelation, and also his plan of salvation. The primary actor in a lot of these things in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit of God. Judges chapter 3, we're going to start in. Yep. The primary actor of God's saving work throughout Scripture is the Holy Spirit of God. In the New Testament, this is made really clear to us, uh, especially after the day of Pentecost. When we see Pentecost, we see the coming of the Holy Spirit onto all the people of God. And then after that, we find that every single person who becomes a Christian has the indwelling Spirit of God. What is it that he is doing? Why is it that that has changed so much? Why is it that salvation now, in the church age, we're required to have the Holy Spirit for everything that God has us to do? Uh, I find that a lot of answers for that really fall short, and it really makes us to assume that a lot of the Christian life is owed to our obedience rather than God doing something through us. And the reality is, throughout the Old Testament, God has shown exactly what he's doing in the plan of salvation and in the work of the Holy Spirit, and he's been doing this since the very beginning. For those of you who are new, uh, this work started in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Almost everyone can quote Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. The Spirit of God coming to enwrap this earth to bring from it life. And if, if there's any place to start with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to keep uh, establishing this introduction each week. Uh, if there's any place to start with the Holy Spirit, it is him as giver of life. It's why the Nicene Creed lists him as that. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the giver of life. Uh, it has been the way that the church has described the Holy Spirit since the early church. Uh, there's, a there's a very specific reason for that. Uh, it means that whenever he's doing something, we can see it attached to life somehow. And when he is pulled from something, we can see it attached to death somehow. When we come to the book of Judges, we're going to see the work of the Holy Spirit almost entirely devoted to killing things. Now, this is a remarkable thing because we don't usually see that. We don't usually see the Holy Spirit involved in destroying things. But in the book of Judges, we do. Because... Uh, the bringing of life into the world is not a single step process. Sometimes it involves judgment. In order to save some, others must be destroyed. This happens in war. This happens in kidnapping situations. And what we start to realize as we come to the book of Judges, as the people of God continue to reject the law of God, God, in delivering those who repent, must judge those who are destroying. And so we're going to see this two-step process that continues on throughout salvation. We're going to be in Genesis chapter, or excuse me, Judges chapter 3 to start. Thank you. And so it gets really difficult in books like the book of Judges to see where is it that life is happening because everyone seems insane. The book of Judges is filled with rulers in, in, in Israel that are, that are off, off the rocker. We, we've, got, we've got people like Samson that we know well from some of the great accomplishments that he had, but I mean, literally, we're talking about Samson, the spirit of the Lord rushes on him, and he shreds a lion to pieces with his bare hands. Like, why is the spirit of the Lord involved in a story like that? That kind of stuff is really, really helpful for us to look into, and that's why we're going to go through 
the book of Judges today with regards to the Holy Spirit. So we start off with the very first reference to the Holy Spirit outside the ministry of Moses, and that is in Judges chapter 3, verse 10. Um, we're going to actually read the story of Othniel. It's only five verses long, um, but this is the first place we get introduced to the Spirit of God outside the ministry of Moses. The people of Israel, this is Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You're going to see this pattern over and over and over again. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. That's the third level. So there's they did evil. They forgot to worship God and worship someone else. And then the Lord is angry with them. Fourth part of the cycle is he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathayim, one of the coolest names in all the Bible, for eight years. Eight years. It occurs in a single phrase in what we're reading. Gather together half a generation. They are taken into captivity. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, there is another step in the cycle. The Lord raised up a deliverer, another step in the cycle, of the people of Israel who saved them. And what's going to have to happen in order to save them? They, he raised up Othniel, the son of Kenaz, which is Caleb's younger brother. Caleb was the, uh, the spy that went in with Joshua into the land of Canaan. Um, his, his younger brother here. So again, we're talking half a generation after Joshua. So a generation and a half after Moses. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathayim, so the land had rest for 40 years. And then Othniel died. Why is the Spirit of the Lord involved in this story? I mean, so far throughout all of the Pentateuch, we've seen the Spirit of the Lord involved in all manner of things, the creation of the world, uh, the, the pulling of his spirit from the world leading to the worldwide flood, which when the spirit came, life came out of non-life, and when the spirit left, death reigned. That, that was a really easy thing to see in the first six chapters. Then we see that he's involved in, in telling of dreams in Genesis 41 with Joseph, and, and Pharaoh of Egypt is able to see this and perceive this and say, he has the spirit of God. There, a polytheist is recognizing that there's something far beyond the diviners that he has in Egypt that there's something spiritual about the life that he's doing. Because again, what was the dream that Joseph was interpreting? There's going to be seven years of plenty and seven years of famine and death. In order to live through the famine and death, one must store up in the times of plenty. The only way to know this is that the Spirit of the Lord revealed it. And Joshua, or excuse me, Joseph, there I'll start with Jays. Joseph points this out to him. Nobody can say this. No man can know this. No man can know the interpretation of a dream, but there's a God in heaven who reveals such things. Daniel says the same thing to Nebuchadnezzar uh, when we see the Spirit of the Lord there. The exact same thing. The Spirit of the Lord there to preserve the life of his people. He's going to bring out of death life, and he's going to do whatever it takes to bring that about. When we see Moses having the Spirit of the Lord in a way that unlike anyone else, and the, the burden of leading the people was too great. And so there was a suggestion made to him that there should be elders in all of the, all of the camp, all of the heads of the household, at least the tops of the heads of the household in each tribe, 70 elders. And the Lord said, fine, we'll do that. Bring them here to the tent of meeting. 
and I will place my spirit on I will take the spirit I put in you, and I will divvy it up amongst all the elders. Right? Two of them didn't have what it took, the gumption to go to the tent of meeting, because those who go to the tent of meeting die when they see God. And what happened? They were out in the camp, and the Spirit of the Lord went on them as well. Joshua was afraid because they were there prophesying in the camp. Joshua comes to Moses. He's like, whoa, 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 they're doing something that you didn't control, that you didn't oversee. And Moses was like, don't worry about the Spirit of the Lord doing what he does. I wish that all the people would have the Spirit of the Lord, a wish that does not get fulfilled until the day of Pentecost 1,500 years later. So that's the setting that we arrived to the book of Judges with. The people of Israel are given the law, they are given rulership, they are given land, they are given a culture from scratch. They were slaves, they had nothing. Everything. Land allotments, boundaries, all of their enemies were to be defeated if they were simply to trust the Lord. We all know how that worked out. They didn't really do so. In fact, multiple of the tribes didn't desire to have that at all. They wanted to live side by side. The, uh, the most notorious one for that was the tribe of Dan. And it led to the time of the judges, which is one of the most confusing episodes in the history of Israel. And here we find some of the most confusing aspects of the Spirit of the Lord. Some things about the Spirit of the Lord that maybe make Christians a little bit nervous. Because here, in order to bring life... The Spirit of the Lord has to be involved with destroying life. That's the nature of a sinful, fallen world. The reality is the same. We saw it back in Genesis chapter 3. In order to clothe Adam and Eve, what did God have to do? It wasn't just getting bigger fig leaves or better fig leaves. No, he had to kill something, skin it, and clothe them. In order to save which is a new aspect of life here in the book of Judges. In order to save, something must die. This is a pattern that we're going to see over and over and over and over again, culminating, obviously, in the person of Jesus Christ. In order to save, death must be a part of the salvific process. The Spirit of the Lord here is not just looking to defeat the enemies of Israel. He is looking to save his people. And in bringing that life to them, it must needs to be that such deliverances, just like in Egypt with all the plagues, that death will be a part of that. Those who set their mind against the Lord will face that risk. Those who set their minds towards the Lord, those who trust in him, this is all over the Old Testament, can depend upon the Lord at all points, even if it means their own death. This brings a special, I would say, comfort even to Christians from the Old Testament, that no matter what we experience, no matter what we pass through, the hope that we can have is that in trusting in the Lord, even if we meet our end, and even if we meet our physical death, that's not the end of the story, right? Jesus says this explicitly there, even before the day of Pentecost. He says this explicitly to them. Those who seek to save their lives are going to lose it. Those who lose their lives for my sake, well, what? They'll find life real life. And that's what the Holy Spirit has always been involved with. He didn't make a creation where people were supposed to die. He made a creation that was about life and plentifulness and abundance, right? And so when we come to the book of Judges, we see a fallen world, a desperate world. You had a question? Okay. Um, we see a desperate world and the people of God being disobedient, just straight up as a whole, 
not, and I don't mean just being disobedient, like, well, they, they did this one thing or broke this one law. No, they just didn't worship God anymore. Instead, we're going to worship false gods. And if you worship false gods, this is what we're going to learn all throughout the Old Testament. Worship is an enormously powerful force. It makes you into the thing that you're worshiping. This is what the, the, the Psalms express to us. You become what you worship. Right? right? We, we usually see this in a much more muted version with, um, with children to their parents. If they, if they aspire to become like their parents or they, they at least revere who their parents are or like who their parents are, they tend to become them. That's a very muted version of what real worship is. This is why I always pray that we worship God as he reveals himself to be rather than what we would prefer him to be because otherwise we just become ourselves. Exactly. Because at the end, what will happen? We will just make any number of idols out of our own mind and of our own thinking and our own hearts or of our own cultures. And that's exactly what happened to the people here. They forgot the Lord their God and they filled that vacuum with whatever was hanging around. Baals, the Asherah poles. These were different idols, different deities that were amongst the people that lived in Canaan before them. And so what's the Lord's response to that? Anger. Anger, yeah. Sent them away to slavery. I undid everything that he brought them out of Egypt to do. For a time. And you go, that, that seems... That seems a little bit harsh. Why not, why not come down and reason with them? If, if their authority is another god, there is no reasoning. Yes, ma'am. I just didn't notice you were saying they were enslaved for seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. And it seems like every time they're enslaved, it gets longer. Yes. Yeah, because it takes longer for repentance. You're right. Exactly. That is part of the cycle. The cycle gets longer each time. But the remarkable thing is that the land had rest 40 years. That length almost never changes. It's They go into slavery, and they're just like, oh, goodness, uh, we, we, sorry, let, we'll come back. All done. Fine. The Lord raises up a deliverer, clothes him in the spirit of the Lord. We see this not only with Othniel. We see it with Jephthah. We see it with Gideon. And most significantly, we see it with Samson. And And we see these these feats of strength or these feats of deliverance that are not normal, are not natural. They're supernatural things. Now, with Othniel, we have no information of how he actually delivered them. Look at this story here. Judges 3, 7 through 11. The Lord, uh, this is in verse 9. The, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord there from slavery to Cushan Rishathayim, uh, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Now, that's where life is. They are going to be preserved in their life. They are going to be returned back to a land. Again, if you're going to have life, you have to have nutrients, a land flowing with milk and honey, right? Mesopotamia is not that. It's a land of mud and reeds. So we're going to return you back to the land. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, did this. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. So in, in coming out and leading Israel out of this, back to it, and then the land had rest for 40 years, that, that cycle will continue throughout the book of Judges. There's going to be 
worship of another god. There's going to be the anger of the Lord. There's going to be selling into the hand of whatever current power there was in the world, calling out to the Lord, the Lord raising up deliverer, and the Lord returning his people back, and then the land having rest for 40 years. That happens multiple, multiple times in the book of Judges. Is this more or less the age of, of one generation? Yep. Yep. The next generation forgets. Yeah, happens all the time. Um, and and I, I think it's one of those it's one of those aspects that is always present even in the church. Uh, it's it's why there's there's always a um, a requirement on us to think towards the future. Um, it's it's always been a very bad habit in the church to think of us as the last generation of the church, um, because then we forget to hand all this down to the next generation. And um, it's one of the reasons why I'm okay being wrong on this. I usually interact with with the world as if there's another thousand years or two thousand years to go. So that we don't become lax in what we have to hand down. Um, you know, and, and if God wants to surprise me by ending the world here in the next five years, I'm okay with that. Um, but I want to be about the business of handing things down to the next generation near full time until that until the very last moment. If I knew Christ was coming back tomorrow, I'd still be teaching my kids about the Lord. Right. I mean, that, that's just, that needs to be the focus of the church. And you see that exact thing with judges. They come back, they learn all this, everyone worships, okay, everything is rest for 40 years. Well, what happens after 40 years? Well, if you're 40 years old, your kids, when they're 40 years old, we start the cycle again. And that, it's a dangerous cycle, but it's kind of one of those that we see happen over and over and over again. And every time, not only does it get longer that they stay in, um, at least generally speaking, it's longer that they are in captivity or oppressed from outside by the Philistines or whatever it is uh, before God sends a deliverer after they repent, it gets more significant. It gets more desperate and it gets more harsh. Like instead of just taking them away so that they serve them in Mesopotamia, sometimes it's just they kill them straight up. By the time we come to the end of the book of Judges, Israel is in such a horrible condition that God now has to send prophets. That's where Samuel comes in. Because by the end of Judges, you have the priesthood is so compromised that the priests themselves are hiring concubines in order to accomplish certain things and making slaves out of people to serve the house of the Lord. It's incredible some of the things that happen in the book of Judges. But here, again, I want to remind us as we continue through this, because we're going to make a beeline through this. Um, So while we're talking, turn to Judges chapter 6. The story of Othniel sets us up to to express or to even uh, perceive what exactly is going on. When we come to the story of Gideon, Gideon is the fifth judge of uh, Israel during this time period, uh, and his great... Uh, his great foe is not the Mesopotamians and Christian Rishathayim, who has been dead for several uh, uh, decades at this point. His is the Midianites. Uh, who do you know the Midianites as? Where did they come from? Does anyone know? Good little trivia to know if you, uh, if you don't know it. Midian was one of Abraham's sons after Sarah died. Right? So Moses was married to Sarah. Uh, and before he had Isaac, he had Ishmael with Hagar, her handmaid. He had Ishmael, then he had Isaac. Most people do not realize he had six more sons after Sarah died. Um, and one of them was Midian. 
And so the Midianites, when we see Moses run away from Egypt, he goes to Midian. He's there with Jethro, who becomes his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. This is how he was a priest. He was a priest of God Most High. This is Abraham's other line. These are cousins of the Israelites. By the time we come to the time of the judges, it's been centuries and centuries. The Midianites hate the Israelites. Very similar to the Edomites. The Edomites were Esau's descendants. The Israelites were Jacob, the two brothers. They've hated each other for centuries at this point. The Midianites have set themselves up against the people of the Lord here in Israel. And this is the main foe, if you will, of Gideon. And Gideon is dealing with all of this aspect. And one of the things that he hates more than anything else is the existence of these altars to Baal throughout the land. And so we have a long story with Gideon. Everybody knows the story of the fleece. But before that happens, we have a story of the Spirit of the Lord involved in something that Gideon does specifically. In the story of Gideon, uh, we'll pick up in verse 28, Judges chapter 6. He has an intention to go destroy these altars. Verse 28, when the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down. The Asherah beside it was cut down. This is something Gideon had done the night before. And that the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. They said to one another, who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, bring, bring out your son that he may die. Again, every time you see the spirit, see for death and life back and forth. For he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal or will you save him? Ah, this is fascinating. You have to save your God. We don't. Whoever contends for him shall be put to death by the morning. If he is a God, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jerubael. Uh, that is to say, let Baal contend against him because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together, and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord, really unique verb here, clothed Gideon. And he sounded the trumpet, and the Abizarites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow them. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they went up to meet him. What's going to happen? This is where the sign of the fleece comes in. Shall we go out? Yes. Uh, I don't really like that answer. Uh, shall we go out? Maybe the fleece will do the other way. God says, yes, still. Absolutely. I've already told you to go do this. Go do it. And then there's too many people. And so it goes down to 300 men. And he has to go out and defeat an entire army with just 300 men. Why is the Spirit of the Lord involved in this story? Spirit of the Lord clothing Gideon has a specific interaction with this. Now, this is not to say that the only times that we have the Spirit of the Lord mentioned explicitly is the only time the Spirit of the Lord is acting. The Spirit of the Lord is acting all throughout Scripture. All throughout. Every time salvation comes to the people of God, every time there's deliverance, creation, life, even judgment, the Spirit of the Lord is involved. But these are explicitly mentioned. And the explicit mentions here really bring out an aspect about the Spirit of the Lord in His saving act that is deep. In order to do this, in order to save his people, he's going to do this not in a way that he just defeats the enemies, just like with Cushan Rishathayim. He's going to do it in a way that is physically impossible. It's not possible for 300 people to defeat thousands and thousands and thousands. It's not possible, right? 
there is only one other time in history, I don't know if you're familiar with this, when the Spartans went up against the Persian armies uh, at the Bosporus. Uh, the, um, it was this place where they funneled them together, and 300 men stood against an entire army. That's laudable, and they all died. Okay? Now, they took out maybe a couple thousand while they did that, but Persians, Persia's armies were hundreds of thousands. It was overwhelming. There was just nothing you can do. That was, that was a suicide last stand. This isn't. 300 men were to be taken into there to defeat the armies. And God specifically goes in and fights for them. Because if you remember, the story isn't that they had 300 swords and they went out and poked everyone. What's the real story? They had these clay jars that had all these ashes in them and coals. And then they surrounded them on the mountaintops, high ground. And what was typically done is that only the leader of a hundred would be carrying a pot like this. They smashed these pots open. And all of a sudden, it looked like the, the Midianites and the Amalekites were surrounded by an, an army in the middle of the night of 30,000 people that already had the high ground. And there was confusion because the Lord sent confusion into the camps and they killed each other. That is not a natural battle. That doesn't happen. Um, this is God saying, you can't actually defeat this foe. You can't carry out your own salvation. You don't have the hope of it. I will raise up a deliverer and I will save. Does that start to sound like New Testament teaching? Right? Here we are back in the, back in the deep history of the Old Testament already gaining the foundation of how it is God saves his people. It's not through their great skill. It is not through their great law-keeping. Where, where are they doing this? Gideon doesn't even believe the Lord. The Lord tells him to go do something. He's like, mm, I want to test you first. And he tosses out a fleece. It's actually wrong of him to do that. But God still meets him there and says, yes, of course I'm going to be with you. And then he's, oh, he puts the fleece out again the next night. Was the night before not good enough? Not only did I tell you explicitly, then show it to you through signs that are unnatural. I'll show you again. And the, I think there was humility in it, and there was just also just straight up disbelief in it. Um, and also, you, you got to understand the time of judges. God's not doing this stuff every generation either. There's entire skip generations. Gideon's never seen anything like that. Uh, Gideon's never seen it. Neither his father has ever seen it. All he knows is that the Lord told him to go do something, and then he's sitting there going, that's not a physically possible task to do. So you better go with me, otherwise we're just walking to our doom, which is exactly what they would have been doing. And so the Spirit of the Lord, how's he bringing life out of this again? In order to bring salvation, there must be death, right? In order to do that, an enemy must be defeated. This is one of those aspects of the New Testament to keep tying it in there. Um, uh, why I always get concerned when Christians talk about death as, you know, a release or, okay, at least our, our suffering's over. No, no, no. Death is the enemy. We must define it that way. Death is not a release. Death is not finally our suffering's over. No, death is the enemy, it should never be that we look at that as a positive thing. It's not. We're not made to die. Death is, death is a, an outcome of sin. But God saves his people through that. 
right? The New Testament says it specifically. This mortal must, not can or should, must put on immortality. It must pass through death and resurrection. This, this, this fallible must put on infallibility because I can't just improve this up to that. We can't work our way up to a glorified state. We can't do that. We're not God, but God can do that. And this is, this is those uh, things here with, with Midian and the Amalekites. We can't just redefine them as, as just trying to do what's best for everything. Every single person that's ever born in this world has an obligation to worship the creator that made them. Everyone, the Midianites, the Malachites, the Israelites, us, everyone. We have this obligation to not fulfill it and to worship someone else is treason. Whether we know it, whether we realize it, doesn't matter. And so that, that kind of cosmic treason is not treated lightly. And so we're not just talking about uh, one nation's enemies versus another nation's enemies. We're talking about the people who are worshiping the Lord and repenting and, and begging the Lord to deliver them and those who are maintaining their dis- disobedience and wrong false worship. So all of this is, is part of this. How is it the Spirit of God works through all of these things is to save his people, those who are not repenting, those who are not coming to the Lord, risk themselves to be destroyed. Turn to Judges 11. Up until someone like Jephthah, God has specifically raised up a nobody from a backwoods to become a judge. Here, his involvement with Jephthah involves one of the mighty warriors, uh, someone who's already has a name for himself. That's a little bit different. And so his involvement with Jephthah will be a little bit different. We're only going to spend a couple of uh, seconds here because we've got to get to Samson uh, because he is he's kind of the main show here. Um, Jephthah is a unique character and one that, uh, one that involves uh, a number of things with regards to deliverance. But one of the, one of the things he's most remembered for is the vow he makes that ends up with his, uh, daughter's life coming to an end. Um, and that, uh, that is a part of a lot of these things here. So what we have is Jephthah. So let's introduce ourselves to Jephthah, right? So we'll just start in verse 1 here. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife also bore him sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. And then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob. And worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites... Those would be people from Ammon, um, Jordan area, uh, made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. Basically, uh, fairweather friends, whenever something goes wrong, we want you back, but otherwise stay away from us. They said to Jephthah, come and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? <laughs> Boundaries, guys. Uh, why have you come to me now when you are in distress 
The elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, this is why we have turned to you now that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, the Lord and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders said to uh, the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do what you say. And so Jephthah went to the elders of Gilead. The people made him the head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all the words before the Lord at Mizpah. So they continued to do all of this. He raises up an army. He works through all of these things. And they journeyed in the wilderness, the land of Edom and Moab and the east side of Moab and all these places. Um, and then by the time we get to uh, all of this, taking possession of the territories from the Amorites, all of this geography, which if you're, interest, if you're interested in geography, I mean, go nuts. This is a, this is a really interesting place, but uh, I'm not, and neither is this class. So um, uh, it, all of this comes down, pick up in verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you and do me wrong by working, making war on me. The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon, but the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent to him. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's even if it's his puppy, his kitty cat, donkey, whatever it is. Whatever comes out of my house to meet me first, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites, fought against them. The Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them from Aror and the neighborhood of Minith, uh, 20 cities, and as far as Abel-Karamim. And with a great blow, and so the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel, right? He came to his home in Mizpah. Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And it's a tragic story after that. Again, the time of the judges is absolutely insane. Um, what... What is the Spirit of the Lord doing in this story? What, what, what stands out more than anything else? The Lord is indeed delivering, but what kind of leader is he using? Well, he made a, he thought he had to make a vow to the Lord instead of depending on the Lord. Yeah. He made a vow that probably wasn't required. That is correct. No other vow was ever required. He's trying to earn favor, trying to trying to get more out of it. Make a deal. Yep, Jacob does the same thing. You know, if you if you're my God and uh, you're going to defend me and all this kind of stuff, and I'll 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 give you money. You know, I mean that's that's a dangerous little path to start walking. And what are we learning about the type of human leaders that God is able to use? Does He need somebody that is absolute perfect in order to carry out His salvation, or does He just use? Oh, the only thing available, fallen humans. Even evil ones to bring about his plan. Well, Jephthah is kind of a substitute. Yeah. Um, he, he, his brothers thought lower of Yep, yep. Somebody that's rejected out, somebody that nobody wants, and then on top of that, somebody that makes really careless decisions. And God is still able to bring about his salvation in the midst of this. 
Let me give you a New Testament parallel. Acts chapter 4, if you're not familiar, is the prayer of the apostles after the day of Pentecost. And they pray to God, thanking him for using sinful leaders to bring about his salvation. They pray about Pontius Pilate. They pray about Herod. They pray about all the Pharisees and all the people carrying out the planned intended purpose of God perfectly through their sins. It is a remarkable prayer in Acts chapter 4 and one of the most challenging to people who think that in order for God to act, he needs perfect people. There are no such people. And God still brings about his perfect salvation. That's one of the, one of the great aspects of this and one that we're about to see in Samson. So turn to Judges chapter 13. It really ramps us up to, to understand what in the world God is using somebody like Samson for because that man has got issues Deep issues. He is the twelfth and final judge of Israel. Uh, if you if you have it in your mind about the time frame of this, um, this would be a couple of generations before uh, David. So about two generations before David, one generation before Saul. Um, so after this, Samuel comes. Uh, he's a he's a prophet judge, sort of. And, and the people just go, we don't want judges, we don't want prophets, prophets, no good. Then we hear the word of the Lord directly, we don't want that, we want kings. They get Saul, David, and you know the history that goes with that. Because they wanted to be like all the other people. Also, not usually a good desire. Uh, judges chapter 13, we're introduced to Samson. Which, you know, if you only know the stories of Samson from uh, Sunday school, you'll think that this guy's awesome. He's like Superman. Um, those are... Small little snippets of his story. He's a horrible person. Absolutely, absolutely horrible. He does amazing feats of strength with bizarre reasons. He has the Nazarite vow. He can't cut his hair. He can't drink wine. But then, you know, people think that the strength is in his hair. Even he thinks the strength is because of his hair. And then his final feat shows that it actually had nothing to do with the hair or any of his natural abilities. This wasn't a natural thing at all. So when people look at this and go like, you know, the story of Samson reads like a, like a fantasy superhero. It's supposed to. It's supposed to read like a fantasy superhero because this is not natural. And that's why the Spirit of the Lord is mentioned more in the story of Samson than all the other judges combined to show us that this is not natural. It's not just a guy with big old muscles. In fact, I would argue Samson did not even resemble a very powerful man. I would argue he looked like anybody else. You know, every time I ever saw pictures of him, he's just like Arnold Schwarzenegger and stuff like that. That would detract from the reality of his story. That when the Spirit of the Lord wasn't on him, he couldn't do anything. He was just a normal guy, bound with fetters, chains, and all these things. It was only when the Spirit of the Lord came upon him that he was able to do these. And it wasn't that he just broke them apart. It actually says they melted off of his wrists. Okay, that's not natural stuff. That's supernatural stuff that's way past any, you know, I went to the gym way too much and all of a sudden metal melts around me. This is, <laughs> this is something really unique. And so Samson is one of these great things that's the culmination of the book of Judges. Uh, uh, Judges chapter 13 I'm going to assume you know a lot of this story, um, but uh, a lot of people don't really know the story of how Samson's, the promise of Samson came about. Um, his parents 
were just kind of hanging out at one point, and then the angel of the Lord approached them and told them that he was going to do something really unique. All of a sudden, we don't just have some random person that the Lord raises up, or one of the leaders like Jephthah that the Lord comes to. No, this guy doesn't even exist yet. Doesn't even exist. The angel of the Lord comes to his parents, says, there is a problem in the people of Israel where I'm going to need a deliverer in X number of years, and so I'm going to send a child through you two. I never heard that in Sunday school. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, this is Samson's father, uh, before Samson was, um, was there. And after that promise was made, verse 15, Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. Like if you're going to give us a child, that, that's a remarkable thing. We need to thank you. You, you need to have you here. Let us prepare a goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that, the, uh, that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? That's a remarkable thing. What's your name? The angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? By the way, angel of the Lord, Old Testament, almost entirely, in almost every instance, is actually the Lord himself. Second person of the Trinity. This is Christ before the incarnation. And so Manoah took a young goat, and we're about to see this because he accepts worship. So Manoah took the young goat with a grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, the one, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. Yes, that is worship. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, and then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to his wife, we will surely die now for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, basically, I don't know how this works, but if he had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us things such as these. And the woman bore a son, called his name Samson. As the young man grew, the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Manah, Dan, and Zorah, and Eshtael. So we have a story now of a promised son that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon to deliver the people. Can you think of a mm, New Testament parallel for that? <laughs> that the Spirit of the Lord is involved in this. This is fantastic, because now we have, and this is one of the great things about reading the Old Testament as a Christian, now we have... The second person of the Trinity, God the Son himself, coming and talking to Manoah and his wife about Samson, a promised son that the Spirit of the Lord would rest upon, that would be a type and a picture of God the Son's own incarnation later on, that the Spirit of the Lord, who was stirring up Samson, would actually bring about in the Virgin Mary. This is, this is one of those remarkable things of God's promises and how he carries out these things and sets us up to expect something more. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I say to Christians, um, when we look at salvation, we have to realize that the salvation that we have, we do not fully perceive how massive it is and how significant it is. Uh, the book of 1 Peter actually says this, that the salvation of God is ready to be revealed at the last day. We're not at the last day. We're in the last days. When we get to the last day, we will finally see how significant salvation actually is. We don't know yet. And if we think that we know it all, 
We have to deal and wrestle with those things that it says we only see in part and we only see dimly and we only see this, but we can't see God face to face. One day we shall. One day we will actually see God the Father face to face, which nobody has ever done except God the Son, which is why he's explaining the Father to us. We will see him and we will live. Salvation is so much bigger than any of us imagine. And what Manoah and his wife were realizing was that the salvation of God is so much bigger than anything they had ever seen. And every single time somebody experiences the work of God like this, they start to realize it's not just what's happened. It's what God is doing despite what we would ask for. Manoah and his wife wouldn't plan this out. They wouldn't go, you know what I really want for my son? When he, you know, when he grows up, what I really want him to do is go up to a lion and shred it with his bare hands. Or go up to the, this, this carcass of a donkey, pick up a jawbone, and kill a thousand men with it that are armed. And he just has a bone. Death, by the way. All sorts of pictures with Samson. We're going to have to pick it up next week because we're running out of time. Um, the story of Samson begins to set forth that when God brings salvation, he's going to promise it. It's not going to be dependent on natural abilities. And he is going to win. Every single time he sets his mind to it. Can you think of a single thing that God ever lost? When he says, you know what I'm going to do? We're going to go out. We're going to have this battle. And, and um, I'm going to try to save you. I'm going to try to do something great. But it might not work. We'll try. We'll see what happens. No, no, no. Every time God goes with them with the intention to save them, he saves them. And every time he goes with them with an intention to judge them, what happens? They are judged. Every time he goes with the intention to destroy them or to root out evil in their midst, such as what happened at AI. You know, every time the Lord goes with them, it is the Lord's purposes that win. No matter who's doing right or who's doing wrong, the Lord wins. The question is not, is the Lord on my side? That was the question Joshua asked him, right? When the angel of the Lord came to him, are you for us or for our enemies? And what was the angel of the Lord's answer? Who remembers this? Neither. As captain of the Lord's hosts, I have now come. The question is not, am I on your side? It's, are you on mine? And that really is at the essence of the gospel. It is not, can God serve me and I can add him to my life? No, we serve God. Can God worship me? No, we worship God. We do not want God to become like us. We want to become like God. That's the direction that it goes. And so our worship expresses this. Our faith, our trust, our dependence on him always goes that direction. Even if it takes us places that we don't like. Right? This was not a pleasant experience for Manoah to grow up and watch his son, first of all, be a moral wreck. Um, has issues with women all over the place and delivers the people of God in bizarro ways. And yet Samson, in all of his craziness, becomes a type and a promise of the Christ who is to come and ultimately deliver based on the promise of God. Um, his, his story is too awesome for me to leave it at that. There's, there's several more instances, and I, I really want you to see the Spirit of the Lord, Lord killing people with the jawbone of a donkey because it's just one of those, it's one of those stories that... Um, you really have to have this 
overarching concept of what God's doing to see where life is coming out of this because deliverance is complicated and messy business sometimes. Any questions here before we pray and, and close out Sunday school this morning? I know we covered a bit of ground and we're in the book of Judges, but... Well, you can see where the sin today, the, the sin, the repentant, the sin, there's, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not only that, that the sin and there's, um, uh, um, repercussion from God because of sin. Mm-hmm. And then, and then the forgiveness is continuing like a repentance part of the, the people. Right. And then moving on again. Right. And so it's over and over and over. Yep. You know, coming up through, and so, you know, and then something I also, you know, they we have to die to self, right? Death, yep. right? Yep. No different. That you can see the you can see yep. the parallel here. It's always been the same. It's coming up to where we are today about death and salvation. Correct. So there's dying to self in order to live. Right. That's what baptism pictures. Yeah. Right. It's it's this that we've been buried with Christ through His crucifixion. In baptism, we that person is dead. We are raised to walk in the newness of life. Um, not that baptism does that, but it signifies what happens at salvation is that what I once was, which was essentially a corpse, has been raised to life. And now I walk not after my own desires, but I walk after his. Now, but the reality is that even this new life that we live still sin, don't we? Right? Romans 7 reminds us that we still have sin in our members. He's talking about like he's talking about sin like it's in our fingertips. It's a really remarkable turn of phrase there. He says, our hearts have been made new, but sin still dwells. It makes me walk where I don't want to walk, do what I don't want to do, think what I don't want to think. And and and, and he even describes himself in a saved state as wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And then he expresses that wonderful. Uh, dependence on God, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, that what we will truly finally experience when when creation's groanings are over, ours will be as well. Uh, that day when God makes all things new, and he will surely do so. And that that whole picture of salvation is, uh, it, it involves this this constant disappointment of ourselves and of one another, because we we know the promise of God, and we know the life of Christ, and yet we are weak and we are fallen still, though redeemed. And, um, and, and that's, that's one of those things why repentance is not a single event. It is the life of the Christian. Yeah. I think it's reassuring, too, because I still think that we, as Christians, through the generations, have always thought, well, it's God on my side. Yeah. Or, yes. And I think it's reassuring to know it doesn't really matter. Nope. God's plan for us is going to be fulfilled no matter how we kick at the kick at the gate or whatever Mm -hmm. it's not important and that's hard yes it is it's humbling very hard it is Mm -hmm. and jesus speaks directly to it we're going to be dealing with in john 6 this morning a sermon titled this morning a gospel that insults because it really is humiliating to say we can't do it Mm -hmm. only god can do this and, and Jesus will take it a whole nother step, and we're about to go talk about this, that not only can you not do it, you won't want to do it. You can't want to be saved on God's terms unless he is first calling you. That's ultimately humiliating. 
to us because we want to think that we at least have good intentions, but maybe not good follow through. And Christ says, you don't even have good intentions. Nobody can come to me unless the Father is drawing him to me. And that, it's shocking and it's frustrating to a fallen mind, but to one who has been risen already, regenerated, they see this and they hear the promise of Christ and they eat it up. Yes, I know nothing good in me dwells. Thank God for Christ. And that, that, is, that is the essence of salvation. That's why it can't depend on us at all. If it did depend on us, we'd all be dead. You know, something else, Tim, is that you see throughout this as well, is that how God, God uses insignificant people to show his, yes. his word. Yep. Um, you know, even, even right to Paul, right? Yep. How, how it steps up through people that are, are considered not nice people. Or, mm-hmm. You know, even in this, the, the parents of Samson, you know, even using them in, in a such a... Um, so it, I, that parallel of how God uses people that we wouldn't think yep. would step up and how he would do. I think that's to show who God really is mm-hmm. and that he can use whomever or whatever he wants in order to to get the point across of who God really is. And that's, that's what he's actually fully concerned with, his own glory. Yeah. And it is a grace that we get to be on for that ride because truth be told, if God wasn't interested in saving his elect, he could just send another flood. Right. right. Wipe or, us all out. Or fire, or whatever. Right? She was like, not a very nice cookie. But he, who was born? There was, Jesus. Was born through that line. And David. David, right. Yeah. So, and Matthew. It's amazing. Not a very nice tax right. Yep. Paul was not a nice guy at all. No. Nope. Oh, Simon the Zealot was another one of the... I mean, Zealots were horrible people. By the way, natural enemies, Zealots, and tax collectors. And Christ calls both of them to be his disciples. Simon has to walk next to Matthew. Those guys, I mean, would have swords on their hip for each other. Uh, And it's just remarkable that they're both in the disciples. Let me pray, and then we go. I have to go uh, pick someone up. Uh, So let let me pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that the depths of its truths will never be plumbed by our minds. Uh, But Father, every once in a while when we dive down and come back up for air, we realize that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And you are interacting with your people and bringing life out of these dead bones and continuing to save your people in your own way and for your own glory. We pray, Father, that we maintain faithfulness, that we worship you as you reveal yourselves to be, and that we do not seek another. We thank you, Father, for the gift that Christ is to us. We thank you for his glory. May we be, may we be satisfied with nothing else. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We'll be back to Samson next week. 